Kia ora, I'm Bernard Hickey, and this is a podcast from the Kaka. Every day I try to put out a podcast on what I think is interesting around the political economy, and yesterday was a big one for the housing market, because the government put out its government policy statement on housing and urban development, and it also confirmed the details of its changes to rules around tax deductibility for the interest costs borne by landlords. You might remember that tax deductibility announcement came out on March the 23rd. It was described then as a shock, and some people actually thought it might lead to a fall in house prices. That's not what we've seen. We've actually seen an acceleration in house price inflation in the last two or three months, and particularly since uh, the lockdown began. So I wanted to have a look at this big document, a 55-page set of directions from the government to the various arms of the government bureaucracies, the councils, banks, builders, everyone in the housing market for the next 30 years, and also the detail of what the government has just done on tax deductibility. I'm going to talk about uh, the overall government record and strategy on housing, and I'm going to talk about some perverse outcomes that are quite possible because of the announcements yesterday in, in line or together with the current restrictions on high LVR lending from the Reserve Bank and the current tax rules. So it's worth just stepping back a bit and looking at what has happened in the last four years since the current government led by Labour has been in power. So since October 2017, the government was in power and it was put in power in part because the then Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern, or the then opposition leader Jacinda Ardern, who became the Prime Minister and is still the Prime Minister, she said that we had a housing crisis and uh, she proposed a capital gains tax. Uh, and um, that was one of the reasons she was elected. Now, obviously, a lot has happened since then, but uh, it's worth having a look at what's actually happened to house prices since the government was elected with the Greens and New Zealand First for the first term in October 2017, and again uh, at the end of last year, just with the Greens. House prices have risen 46% since the government, current government was elected. Rents have increased 12%. However, over that time, wage and salary rates, so not total income because we have been working longer and more of us have been working, but average wage rates, so how much you earn from one hour of work, that has risen 7.8%. So what's happened here is that house prices have risen 5.9 times faster than wages. And rents have risen one and a half times faster than wages. Over that time, uh, the owners of homes, so both landlords and owner-occupiers, have seen the net equity in their homes rise by $423 billion to $1.24 None of that was taxed. And over that time, those people who were hoping to save a deposit and borrow some money to buy a house, be it an old house, an existing house, or a new house, they now need significantly larger deposits. At the same time, their rents have increased faster than their wages. 
and they've just endured um, the worst economic shock in our living memory, which has hurt those people on precarious and low incomes more than those who had salaries and assets. And they obviously haven't benefited from the rise in those asset values. So we have a housing affordability crisis. We had one in 2017. It's now, some people say, including Arthur Grimes, the former chair of the Reserve Bank, that it is, and one of our leading researchers on tax and housing, he says it's now a catastrophe. So what is the government doing about this catastrophe? Well, uh, a few years ago it passed an Act of Parliament, the Kainga Order Act, which essentially created Kainga Order, uh, well, took over the old housing New Zealand, and gave it some particular powers to start uh, building its own developments, consenting its own developments, and one of the aspects of that act was that the government had to come up with a government policy statement on housing and urban development to essentially chart the path for the entire housing sector and the economy over the next 30 years to say what it wanted on the housing front. So this was a good opportunity to see what the government does want and what it would like to see happen uh, and outline not just its ambitions but provide some targets and overall uh, measures of its performance and what success looks like and whether it has actually achieved that, uh, provide some tools for accountability. Well, um, we haven't seen that in this government policy statement issued yesterday. It's a very broad mother pie, um, apple, uh, apple pie and motherhood uh, type of statement and uh, I've read through the 55 pages, so you don't have to, uh, to have a look at what it's actually saying and um, what it's actually doing, firstly. Uh, so um, just a, a quick um, uh, uh, wrap up again on what's happened over the last year or so. Uh, banks have lent an extra $35 billion into the housing market. Um, that's partly fueled. Uh, and um, encouraged by the Reserve Bank printing $60 billion and buying government bonds in the secondary bond market to push down interest rates, particularly longer-term interest rates, and therefore to push down mortgage rates, in part to um, pump up the value of houses so that consumers who own homes feel richer and are more confident about spending and investing in their own small businesses. That worked. Uh, what it meant, though, was that um, house prices rose 30% and mortgage debt rose by 12.8% inside 12 months, although obviously the equity in people's homes rose by much more. We know now that um, the, uh, the value of houses, the net value of the houses after you take out the equity has risen by more than $400 billion to about one point five billion dollars in the last year or so and uh, the government realized towards the end of last year that things were taking off again and started talking about giving the reserve bank uh, new um, targets if you like or a new mandate to try and target household housing affordability it just quietly changed that mandate uh, at the end of last year early this year to, to change it from affordability being the word in the new mandate for monetary policy to sustainability. So affordability and sustainability sound the same, don't they? But they're actually not. Sustainability implies that current uh, levels of house prices are sustainable or not sustainable. And uh, therefore you could quite easily have 
house prices that are unaffordably high, but sustainably high because the conditions in the market mean that um, prices are unlikely to fall. And that effectively is what the Reserve Bank has judged the housing market to be at in the last couple of years. Its forecast, the last forecast is that house prices rise another 10% over the next year before falling maybe 5%, so net 5% higher. They've said that um, because of a shortage of housing um, over the last 20 years, because of high net migration, and because of the current tax policies, which mean that capital gains are untaxed, that um, there is surplus demand and uh, low enough supply that has pushed prices up to these levels. Now, the question is, if you want to get affordability back to some sort of normal level, whatever that is, uh, well, you could have a look at the history of New Zealand's house, housing market and, and its rents. And what we've seen over the last uh, 20 years in particular is a rise in the value of houses relative to incomes. So the house price to income multiple has risen from around three to four at the beginning of the century. So in the late 1990s, early 2000s, so between three and four of uh, household disposable income. So let's say you've got a couple of people working, a couple of young people earning median wage, a bit lower than that. They could afford to buy a house for three or four, maybe five times their income. Since then, uh, that house price to income multiple has risen to over 10 in most parts of the country. And in some parts, it's over 12. Uh, that is the most expensive housing in the world. And the one useful information piece of information we got from the housing document today was that our rents and our cost of um, ownership of homes, so both the combination of those who own and those who rent, takes away about 26% of disposable income. Uh, that is the highest in the OECD. So that means our housing market is the least affordable, most expensive in the entire OECD. And the average in the OECD for that number is 20%. So our housing costs 26% of disposable income. The average in the OECD is 20 Now, that doesn't make a judgment about whether housing is affordable at 20%. Remember, that's across the entire market, including those who own their home, own homes and are currently spending less than 6% of their income servicing their mortgages. So what this says is that renting is also unaffordable. It's not just uh, buying. So, um, what is the government going to do about this? What does this housing and urban development statement say about what the government wants? Well, uh, some, some lovely words in here, including, quote, all New Zealanders deserve to live in a safe, warm, dry home that they can afford. That's good. We, we all agree on that. Um, this GPS HUD, as it's called, uh, sets out a, quote, shared aspirational vision and direction for housing and urban development in Aotearoa, New Zealand, over the next 30 years. Lovely, you've got me very excited now. I'm going to have a look for what this vision is. The trouble is, there is no target for affordability, no um, measure of what the government wants to see that affordability level improve to. All it does is point out that um, Currently, uh, a total cost of housing is 26% of disposable income, and that's the worst in the OECD, and that it currently um, judges affordability for state house tenants to be 25% of disposable income, and that's the subsidy that is, um, that's the number that, that decides the subsidy for uh, rental um, subsidies. 
and uh, also that um, currently uh, most banks won't lend more than 30% of the disposable income of a, of a couple wanting to buy a home, although there are some who are able to uh, obviously borrow more. So what that says is it's pointed waftily to some numbers around the 25 to 30% of disposable income level. And depending on which level of interest rates you're talking about, that would suggest that um, a, an affordable level, which is not where we are at the moment, would be somewhere else between three, five times income. So if you were to do that overnight, that would imply at least a halving of house prices. Now, that's not what the government's saying in here. In fact, it's been asked about this many, many times over the last couple of years, including in the election campaign, about what it wants to see with house prices. Now, we all know that if you're going to improve affordability quickly and in any meaningful way, then you need to have house price falls. But the government has repeatedly said it doesn't want house prices to fall, even though they have risen 46% since it was elected. So effectively, you're seeing a ratcheting up of prices. And obviously, the Reserve Bank used the housing market as a, um, a wealth generation tool to support the economy when it couldn't cut interest rates anymore. So um, we have a situation where the public who own property or want to own property can see that we have an, an effective government guarantee on, or a floor on house prices. So every time they ratchet up, that becomes the new floor. And we've heard from the Prime Minister about what she thinks sustained moderation in house prices means. She hasn't uh, put it into a document anywhere, but we asked her repeatedly last year, and she said something more like the 4% rise in house prices on average is on average seen in the first three years of the government. So um, currently we've got 30% house price inflation, so it's nowhere near the 3 4 5% that she's talking about. But if we were to average 3 4 5%, the sustained moderation that is referred to, that would mean there'd be no improvement in affordability because disposable income typically rises around 4 5% per year. So in effect, to improve the relationship between house prices and income, uh, you really need uh, incomes to rise faster than the cost of housing. And with the government's current sustained moderation, idea of uh, what the housing market should do, uh, that would mean no improvement in affordability, uh, depending on what uh, measure you use, um, for between 50 and 100 years. So what it's saying to the current generation of people locked out of housing is that you can not expect to have affordable housing in your lifetime, and certainly not in time for you to start thinking about having a family. This is the dirty little secret of the current housing debate, which um, the government hasn't acknowledged. It will only continue to insist that it uh, will try to make housing affordable. Uh, of course, that's what everyone wants, but it's not setting itself any targets or doing anything to actually make housing affordable. And by its own statements, it wouldn't allow house prices to become affordable because it doesn't want house prices to fall. So uh, uh, that's the main piece of news that came out yesterday. And in the process, I went to interview Megan Woods, the housing minister. She came out after Parliament yesterday afternoon. And I asked her in particular about uh, what was in the document, uh, where the, um, the targets and the plan was, 
and why there weren't any um, particular aims on affordability. So here's uh, me on the what they call the tiles in Parliament talking to Megan Woods yesterday. Now I have to warn you the sound quality on this is not great. I had to run out with my phone and poke it at her uh, in a dist- at, a, at a distance of more than two meters because we are currently in level two restrictions in Parliament. So please please bear with me on the awful sound quality. Once we get to level one, I hope that that will improve. And uh, as I get better at this audio game, I hope that will improve. So here's this interview with Megan Woods. It lasts about uh, 13 or 14 minutes. But you'll get a sense of what the government's thinking and doing and saying. And it gives the government a chance to respond to my questions. Could you um, talk through why there doesn't seem to be any specific... um, target or level around affordability in terms of what success looks like? Um, In terms of the government policy statement on urban development, um, that's not the purpose of this document. The purpose of this document is around putting together the long-term strategy in terms of how government is going to work across itself. This is not a detailed action plan. It operates much like a GPS on transport does, which sets out the the long-term direction. Um, It's not the place where you'd expect to see targets. It's not the purpose of that document. So what do you think um, affordable means for housing? Look, I think we've, I mean, this is a topic that's been traversed many times over. Uh, We know there's international measures in place around what housing affordability looks like. Um, That's, of course, 30% of income. We know that our own um, income-related rent subsidy when it comes to public housing is set at 25% of income. And so what is New Zealand's level of housing affordability right now? Look, we know that in terms of the ability to to reach that 30% threshold, um, there aren't many places in New Zealand where where that is the place. Um, and that there's much work to be done. And that's exactly what the, the government policy statement um, on housing is about. It's about making sure that we are prioritising affordability, whether that be about home ownership or it be about renting. But we are under no illusions. Um, there is no single fix for this. It, it is um, a crisis that has been decades in the making, and it is a crisis that, um, that we have to continue um, to work with a range of policy measures to fix. So what would you say to first-home buyers or or young renters about how long it's going to be before housing might become affordable? Look, I think one of the things that we have been able to do is staunch um, some of the um, very high levels of growth that we were seeing earlier this year. We saw in February this year a month-on-month increase of 5.4%, I think it was, in terms of home ownership. Um, That certainly was not something that could be sustained. We have seen a slight coming off. Um, with some of the measures that we announced in March of this year in terms of the growth. But look, we we are under no illusions. There is still more work to be done. What you will have seen today uh, with our interest interest deductibility rules announcements is that we very much are about creating incentives around bringing on new supply because we know that one of the things that New Zealand needs, badly needs, is more houses. And that will speak to both affordability in rental and home ownership. Does this um, uh, statement talk about the, um, the size of the uh, supply deficit or how quickly it needs to be removed? One of the things that we have um, talked about at length over the last few years in terms of the size, there, there are widely different 
um, estimates of what the supply challenge is. One of the things that we've found most useful is to actually do this in a place-by-place approach because one of the things that alters um, the, the number of houses that are needed the most, perhaps, is actually changing demographics and household composition. The model is incredibly... Um, sensitive to changes in, the, in that model. So if you go from a, an average household composition of, say, 2.7 people, and that moves down to 2.4 people, that there's a requirement for tens of thousands more houses, tens of thousands of more houses. So we really need to consider each area. Um, we know that there's, um, there's numbers that have been put out there that is a very widespread in terms of how, how many houses we are short of in New Zealand, but I'm more interested in, in understanding that in a more granular way, understanding the kinds of houses we need and where we need them. So when you say the market had been hot, and maybe it's not quite so hot anymore, um, how do you improve affordability um, unless you see house prices either flat or falling? Well, I think one of the things, the first job, as we've consistently said, it was to, to bring out that heat in the market, to bring that off, um, that that wasn't something that could be sustained. Can I ask the GPS HUD announcement? Sorry. The GPS HUD. Yeah. So in terms, of, um, in terms of the six areas of focus, you've said that you, know, you want to get people meeting the needs of our community, that sort of thing. Is there any kind of focus on the quality of housing in terms of design excellence perhaps, things like that? So there's a number of focus areas that are in the GPS around quality and that's um, both from a sustainability point of view in terms of wanting to make sure that we're building energy efficient houses as the Minister of Energy. I'm also highly motivated to make sure that we're doing that. But it's accessibility is also one of the critical areas that you'll find that's talked about in this document. And you, you have a target for that in, for payment order and there's a target on universal housing. Will there be similar things for other types of housing? Um, we're not recommending that at this stage, uh, but what we um, are seeing increasingly is more and more developments are building to accessible um, levels. You actually make them more attractive to a wide range of buyers. We do have our target in Kaimaora, but in reality we, we, um, we exceed that target. Just about all of Kaimaora's new builds are now universal or accessible homes. Um, not the case if it's required a flight of stairs to get it, but certainly all ground floor new builds are built to that standard. And with this GPS HED, do you do much in, like, in terms of having a relationship with local councils? Will you be building that? Oh, absolutely. One of the, the cornerstones of our approach to fixing the housing crisis um, is the relationships that we've been forming through our growth partnerships. Um, we've, we have growth partnerships around the country in a large number of centres now where we have the hottest and highest housing need because we know that central government can't solve the housing crisis alone. This requires not only um, local government to be part of the solution, it also um, requires iwi and it requires our development communities to be on board as well. What, what role do you see for community housing associations in the um strategy? Oh, look, community housing um, providers are incredibly important to this government. In fact, the amount of funding that has been given to community housing providers under this government far exceeds anything that they have seen previously. Um, that what we know is that, um, that we need community housing providers to be committed to new builds and that's a conversation that we have been having, um, that if we are going to solve the housing crisis, both um, Kaiwa Ora and the other community housing providers um, need to not just be buying in houses, 
they need to be building houses too, because we need to build houses to fix the housing crisis. So would the government look to increase um, the amount of uh, capital grants or assistance it gives to it's community housing? It's not only capital grants. This isn't the need that is most identified by community housing providers. Um, there is a number of measures that we've already taken um, that means that community housing providers can now get the economics right to build outside of our main urban centres of Auckland, Wellington and Christchurch. And that is by increasing the rent maxima um, out within the region. So we for decades haven't seen uh, community housing or the state actually building houses Many outside of our urban centres, we need to reignite that. So what we have done like over a year ago now is raise that rent maxima so that the economics are right uh, for the providers to be able to build in those centres. We also brought in upfront funding for a number of our providers so they actually can capitalise uh, the funding that they will receive over a number of years. These are the very things that I'm hearing from our community housing providers that they need. Sorry, I'm sorry I'm a bit slow on this You've raised the rent maxima. What does so, that mean? So the rent maxima is the difference that is paid to a community provider between Ōkai or Ora between the IRRS, so the amount, the 25% of an income that a tenant can, play, can, can um, pay and then what the rent for that property can be. Um, that it was set much lower outside of our main region, region, uh, urban centres in our regions than it was in our urban centres, which meant that we had a predominance of houses being built in those places where they could charge the highest rent. I've, we've moved over a year ago um, to change that because I don't want to just see... Uh, public houses being built in our main urban centres. So you see the GPS gives general direction. Would the government ever look to um, start saying what its affordability targets might be in terms uh, of... Um, th that isn't the purpose of this document. No, no. We've already been through. I mean, I think one of the things that we know is that we need more affordable houses. I think that's blindingly obvious. But, no, what I'm saying, separate from this, do you think the government should or could come up with some targets or ambition for affordability? Uh, look, I think the most critical thing is that we ensure that we have more houses being built, that we ensure that we are bringing on more public houses and we have a commitment to that. Um, I'm proud of the efforts that our government is making in that area. This is the most that we've seen in over a generation. So there are a number of work programmes that have targets around affordability. You just need to look at the public housing programme. Can I just clarify, you sure. said something before which I may have misheard. Did you say you didn't want to see public housing in our urban centres? No, centers? just being yeah. built in yeah. our urban centres. Yeah. Um, that For too long we haven't also seen public housing being built in our regional centres. It's why we now have housing crises in places like uh, Whanganui and Gisborne and Palmerston North. We just haven't had the incentives right and the settings haven't been right to make sure that we've seen good spread of public housing. I want to see public housing built, being built across New Zealand where there is need. Just on, sorry, just on interest deductibility, um, there's some suggestion that you're looking for advice on providing some exemptions or help for build to rent. Can you talk through that? Yeah, and this has been well and long signalled that this is a piece of work that we're doing, um, that we know that a missing part of New Zealand's um, rental picture 
uh, when we compare ourselves to other OECD um, countries as if we've spelt rental market or build to rent, um, as it's sometimes called. So um, we, um, last year, set up a steering group comprised of industry groups, um, industry members to give government advice on what they saw the impediments in New Zealand uh, would be. So uh, we'll be considering a range of um, options and advice will come to me before the end of this calendar year. I have one last question. You have released this big strategy alongside MITE in terms of the Māori strategy. What, um, we're talking about home ownership, Māori home ownership is obviously an issue. What consideration has there been in terms of involving banks and those sorts of policies which have limited Māori people in order to get loans? Has there been something in work or at play to, to so home ownership for Māori is high on our agenda and you'll see that um, through the Mighty um, strategy and the, the strategic implementation um, plan that was released today that sits alongside that. There's a number of measures that we have there. Of course we have the ring fence within the housing, afford- uh, housing acceleration fund. We also have a ring fence between in the progressive home ownership scheme where effectively the government is the bank there but we also know there is a complexity when it comes to banks lending on collective title on, on Whenua Māori. It's a conversation that I've certainly had with our major banks um, and encourage them to look for innovative ways in modern New Zealand um, that actually whenua Māori will be part of the solution to how, how we solve the housing crisis. So I've encouraged banks to go away and have a think about that because I think there's a lot of opportunities for us in housing on whenua Māori. Just, just finally, um, what would success look like in affordable housing for you? Oh, look, I think that we've laid that out really clearly in terms of the government policy statement of what our long-term vision for New Zealand is in housing, and that is for people to have access um, to to, um, homes and places um, that meet their aspirations and and are attainable. So you're talking about that 25% for rent and 30% for buying? No, 25% of the course is for our income-related rent public housing stock. I don't want you to be under any illusions that we're setting that as some kind of target for rentals. That is simply what income-related rent um, subsidies look like. That's for a very specific subset of housing. Because some economists have said it's actually going to take 50 years for you to get affordability levels back down to where they were just in 2017, given the inflation and um, the government comments about sustained moderation, which appears to mean more than 4% house price inflation per year. Well, affordability isn't just about home ownership, Bernard. It's also about making sure that we've got affordable rentals for New Zealanders. And our government is making a commitment like we haven't seen in a generation around rebuilding our public housing stock and also working to ensure that we are also um, un- have the capacity to unleash other market affordable rents. So that's going to have to go now. So there you have it, Megan Woods, in response to my questions about the government policy statement on housing and urban development. Uh, So what else happened yesterday, given that we now know the government doesn't have a pathway to affordability and isn't doing much to uh, make that happen? In particular, there are no new infrastructure funding announcements, um, no increase in the State House Building Programme, no change in the tax rules other than the tax deductibility rules beyond what we already know about the doubling of the Bright Line test 
and um, no change in the fundamental um, issue of the government restricting infrastructure investment for housing and transport because of its its adherence to the um, directive from the Public Finance Act to continually run budget surpluses outside of crises and reduce government debt, which in the long run uh, means, according to the Treasury uh, and, and the practices of both flavours of government over the last 30 years, which means going for 20% net debt as your debt target. Uh, that's also a target that the Labour Party committed to in the 2017 election, which was fundamentally in conflict with its um, uh, proposed $100,000 100,000-home Kiwi build project and its talk about light rail. It could never have done that with its um, plans for keeping debt below 20% of GDP and also its commitment to keep the size of government below 30% of GDP. Essentially, you can't really solve this housing problem unless you use the government's balance sheet to build housing and transport infrastructure to ensure lots of affordable, medium-density, climate-friendly homes are built in your biggest cities because those same Public Finance Act restrictions apply indirectly through the local government fund funding agency to councils and because of the difficulty that councils have uh, uh, spending lots of money on infrastructure because every time they do they take on debt and they increase the size of the council and that's not what ratepayers, particularly ratepayers in the inner city leafy suburbs want because what they actually want is no new people living anywhere near them and the best way to stop that is to stop councils from borrowing money to build infrastructure and that's been the story of the last 30 years in our biggest cities, particularly Auckland, Wellington, Christchurch, uh, Hamilton, Tauranga and uh, Queenstown with a small wrinkle for Queenstown. And um, that restriction on infrastructure funding and financing has been talked about for quite some time and there's been various attempts to do it. But the fundamental problem is that um, since the early 90s, the government has decided that it won't use the balance sheet of the state, state borrowing, state spending, to what it thinks of as subsidising. Uh, home buyers by essentially paying for the infrastructure under new housing. So what that's meant is the development of these things called um, development contributions, which anyone building a new house, a developer, has to pay. can be $10,000, $20,000, $50,000 per home. And that, of course, gets loaded on to the cost of a home when you buy it. There's also been restrictions on land supply and very fast population growth, which means that the marginal land on the edge of town becomes very valuable and therefore costs you know, $300,000, $400,000, a section and gets lopped on to the price of a new home. Given that most of our new homes still are uh, standalone, um, single-level or at best double-level dwellings with... Um, a little bit of a backyard and a couple of garages, which means you need a plot of land which could cost you three, four, five hundred thousand dollars. And um, that has pushed up the cost of the new home. And remember, the price of housing really is set at the margins by the cost of building a new home. And so every time you ratchet up the price of a new home, you effectively ratchet up the prices right across the market as long as it's growing. So 
that is uh, where we are with house prices. Well, we know that in March, the government announced this tax deductibility move. It means that landlords who previously could claim interest costs as a tax deductible expense now cannot, or at least it'll be phased out over the next four years for existing homes. So that's not too surprising. We knew that in March, it actually didn't have much of an impact to slow the housing market. Uh, you could argue the counterfactual is the housing market could have risen much, much faster, and it didn't. But it certainly hasn't slowed things as much as people expected. Because at the same time, the government also moved to double the Brightline test from five years to 10 years. So that means if you own a home, uh, particularly if you're a landlord and you sell it uh, seven years, eight years after you bought it, then that is deemed to mean that you were effectively trading it for capital gain and you have to pay an effective capital gains tax. Um, it's a type of income tax on the gains on your on your capital. Uh, so what that's meant is a lot of people have said, okay, well, I'll just wait the 10 years. I wasn't planning to sell it anytime soon anyway. And um, once the 10 years is up, then I can sell it and make my capital gains tax-free. So that meant, actually, that we saw a withdrawal of potential supply onto the market. So now we have a situation where there are now more real estate agents, about 15,000 in the country, than there are listings, just over 12,000, the lowest all-time level of listings. Understandably, if you've got a house and you think, gee, if I wait for a year before I sell it, I'll make another 30% because house prices have risen 30% in the last year and they look like they're going to do it again. So people aren't selling their house into the market. They don't need to. They can pay the mortgage. Uh, obviously, people need to move on a bit. <laughs> they also can't go away overseas and, and actually in Auckland, can't actually leave the city. So you, you're not seeing the same uh, movement from homeowner to homeowner, i.e. people <clears throat> buying their second or third home. So... And then you've got all the first home buyers who are, excuse me, I'm just going to have a glass of water and I'm not going to edit it out either. Um, so you've got the situation where um, there's not much new listings coming onto the market. And because the Reserve Bank has just reapplied the LVRs, that means that it's less easy to be able to borrow more than 80% um, of the value of the home to buy a new home. So there we have, that's the current situation where we've got this tax deductibility rules. Now at the moment, um, the LVR rules essentially exempt new home builds from those rules. So you can borrow up to 100% if you're buying a new home. And there has been a fair amount of uh, this sort of lending over the last couple of years. In fact, I had a look at the numbers and what they show is that uh, there's been $10 billion of high LVR lending that was exempted. Now, it's not specifically said this is for new home builds, but that's the main reason for exemptions from the LVR restrictions. And of that, about $3 billion of the $10 billion goes to first home buyers. Uh, so they are able to, home, first home buyers or people without rental property collateral. So it's quite possible they could be an owner occupier who previously owned a home, has sold a home, and is then use that money to buy a first, uh, to buy a, um, a new build. Uh, so that's $3 billion there. And then there's landlords who get exemptions for $7 billion of new lending over the last six months. So what this says is overall, almost 20% of new home lending right now 
is going out as high LVR lending for new builds. That's quite risky if you're a bank because new builds are just inevitably riskier than existing homes. Existing homes, you don't have to wait for the building consent. You don't have to hope that the weather is okay during the winter. You don't have to worry about a lack of building materials or, or workforces. You don't have to worry about a dodgy developer. Uh, you don't have to worry about, you don't have to worry as much about leaky buildings or quaky buildings. You've got an existing, from a bank's point of view, hopefully standalone uh, uh, home already built, um, already lived in, uh, and it's a lot less risky to lend to. So at the moment, we've got a situation where almost a fifth of new lending is going to riskier builds. Now, the whole point of the LVR restrictions, says the Reserve Bank, is to make the banking system safer. So you want to restrict the amount of high LVR lending going to risky lending. That's why you essentially uh, see the Reserve Bank has just halved the amount of high LVR lending. Remember, that's not exempted, but overall... Uh, high LVR lending. And that means that uh, we are now in a situation where because the uh, the tax uh, deductibility issue means that, and this was the news yesterday, that the government said you can continue to claim tax as a deductible expense if you've just bought a new build and you've got that exemption for 20 years. So, for example, uh, given we now have this 10-year Brightline test, if you're a rental property investor or an owner-occupier, you can now buy a home off the plan or a brand new home that's just been built, and you can borrow up to 100%, and you can exemption for that, and then you can hold on to it for 10 years under the Brightline rules, and then you can sell it and keep any capital gain tax-free. So uh, landlords are looking at this going, gee, well, I can keep going with the exemptions as long as I do a new build. And that's what they've actually been doing quite a bit uh, with high LVR lending for the last six months. There's been $7 billion worth of lending to landlords at high LVR levels to buy new homes. And that's helped fuel a, a building boom in uh, more affordable apartment style, townhouse style um, homes, particularly in Auckland in the last couple of years. It means we have record high housing consent issuance, at least in terms of total numbers at over 45,000 in the last year. And so the combination of the LVR exemptions for new builds plus the exemptions for tax deductibility on new builds means that landlords are going to go, hmm, I can't get the exemption on this existing home, so there's no point in buying that. I'm going to get the exemption on the new builds, I'll buy that, and I can get a high LVR loan because it's exempt. So what you're going to see, I think, is an increase in demand for uh, high LVR lending to investors to buy new builds, as long as the banks accept that. So at the moment, the Reserve Bank can't, unless it gets rid of the exemption, it can't stop the banks from doing this. But if you were a bank manager or director, you'd be a little bit nervous about putting more than 20% of your new lending, $10 billion in six months, into a sector which um, could go bust at any time or is subject to the vagaries of the Resource Management Act uh, or whatever it is, a shortage of new workers, you know, level four restrictions for six months. You'd be nervous about that as a bank. 
And so what it means is we're going to have a situation where perversely, uh, if you're a bank, you've got to ration your lending in some way. And of course, the way to do it is to ration it to those people who are the least risky, which means that landlords are the least risky uh, because they have a lot more equity than a first home buyer and probably a lot more rental income across their portfolio of uh, rentals to back up the new loan. So ironically, this change means uh, the banks are more likely to lend to landlords to buy rental properties. So first home buyers miss out. Again, uh, remember last week's announcement halved the amount of um, high LVR lending that isn't exempt to uh, everyone. And because first home buyers are the riskiest, they will get lumped with the, uh, the biggest cut in lending. So by my estimate, it's about $5 billion worth of um, house buying demand was taken away from first home buyers in that decision. And so um, the irony is here that two measures, i.e. the um, removal of tax deductibility for landlords and LVRs, which are supposed to cool down the market, those two measures together could A, increase demand for new builds, therefore push up their prices, B, reduce the amount of lending going into the sector, therefore starving um, the market of supply of new houses. So you've got an increase in demand and a reduction in supply, therefore increasing prices, and screwing the scrum ever more against first home buyers. At the same time, the government's just come out with its 30-year strategy for housing, which doesn't say how or where it wants housing affordability to go. That's the situation that we're in at the moment. And you may say, that's outrageous. Uh, how can that continue? Surely voters will revolt. And the government, which says it is all in favour of housing affordability and was elected on improving <laughs> housing affordability, will get booted out by the outrage from New Zealanders about the um, crazy high prices and crazy high rents and the various regulatory interventions which don't seem to have worked. That's what you'd think. But when you actually look at the focus grouping and the electoral results in the last decade in New Zealand, what you see is that the people who vote the most are homeowners. So they tend to be older and wealthier and frankly whiter and more able and willing and knowledgeable and um, prepared to vote. So voting rates amongst older property owners particularly in the suburbs, uh, particularly Pākehā, are significantly higher than for young renters, people from Māori and Pacifica and Asian backgrounds. So what that means is, even though there are lots and lots of renters, young people, frustrated young people who want to build their futures and have secure lives in their own properties, or even a secure life in a rented property that's affordable, they are not voting. So their interests are not represented in elections. And the government knows that the median voters you need to be able to get over the line in an MMP election are homeowners. And actually, just quietly, they love this situation. Just imagine, you're a homeowner, you've had a tough couple of years with COVID, you might have lost their job for a bit, um, you may have, um, uh, maybe you've got two or three jobs or a small business that struggled, but you know that in the last uh, year and a half, the value of your home has risen by, on average, between three hundred and five hundred thousand dollars. So you know that your home is 
earned a lot more than you have. And no one's going to take that away from you. Apart from anything else, you may well have arranged your financial affairs around that rise in equity. And you also see it as your nest egg for retirement and also the pool of money which you're going to have to use to withdraw equity and help your kids get into the housing market. Because remember, they can't afford to under their own steam anymore. They're going to have to come to the bank of mum and dad. So when you're a politician and you're trying to win these median voters who are quietly thrilled with the rise in tax-free leveraged equity in their homes and now reliant on it for both their businesses and their financial futures, any suggestion that you're going to change that situation or take that money away or tax it, and that's what the capital gains tax debate of the last three elections was about, makes you more likely to vote for a party which does not want a capital gains tax or or uh, is going to take actions which swamp the market with new supply and push down rents and house prices. That's why politicians who get elected never say, I want house prices to fall. The last politician to do that openly was Matilda Toure of the Green Party, who's no longer the co-leader of the Green Party. And when Jacinda Ardern and Judith Collins were asked in the election debate in 2020 by Paddy Gower, would you like house prices to fall? The Prime Minister said no. And when we've asked her repeatedly how we're going to get to affordability without falls in house prices, she has simply said, I want house prices to moderate or house price inflation to moderate, and has said in the past that means around about 4% inflation per year, which effectively means no improvement in affordability for 50 to 100 years. Um, so there we have it, uh, the, big the big moves on the housing market in the last uh, uh, couple of days, um, analysed there. So just to summarise, if you're still with me at this point, it's great. Uh, just to summarise, the government's put out a housing policy which has no targets, no accountability, no changes in method to improve affordability, even though it says it wants to. It has changed the tax deductibility rules for landlords, but in the process may have accidentally made the situation worse by um, restricting uh, um, the ability for people to uh, borrow against new homes or forcing the banks to effectively tighten um, credit for new house building and is in the process um, empowered uh, landlords to buy the m most of these new builds that are coming out. The other piece of news that's of interest in the last couple of days is the government's confirmed it's looking at effectively allowing people who are big pension funds to invest in build to rent projects, which previously they weren't that attracted to because they didn't get the same tax breaks as mums and dads who are rental property investors, uh, unlike uh, mums and dads who don't have to declare their capital gains. Every year a pension fund or a KiwiSaver fund has to say, we made this capital gain after I revalued my property and here's the tax that I've paid on it. To the point, by the way, where the New Zealand Superfund paid more tax back to the government last year than it received in contributions. <laughs> Thank goodness for capital gains. Uh, so what this means that is that the government is taking policy actions to um, give tax breaks to pension funds to build build-to-rent properties, which is good news if you're looking for 
uh, cheaper rate rents. Now, what it means, though, is that we're going to see a lot more houses built which are specifically built for the purpose of renting to someone, not for home ownership. So the idea that we have a um, home, home ownership democracy, that the current government is interested in making it more affordable and easier to buy a new home to live in for yourself is simply not true. And those people who are hoping to own their own home and have their own secure futures for their own families now face a situation where the government is effectively um, ratcheting up prices, providing an effective government guarantee for existing homeowners, um, using the housing market as a macroeconomic tool to support uh, the housing market and the economy generally um, is effectively acting in the interests of homeowners, particularly median voters who don't want to lose those capital gains, and is in the process um, making it more likely that people will be renters for life than less likely. On that cheery note, I hope you've enjoyed today's um, podcast from the Kaka. I'm Bernard Hickey. Now, you might have seen in the um, email that went out with this podcast, uh, my um, request for people to subscribe to the Kaka. Uh, every day we put out an um, email and podcast which looks at the issues of the, around the political economy and particularly housing, uh, climate change, uh, politics, business, economics. And I uh, typically charge $19 a month and $190 a year, i.e. you pay $190 and you get a subscription for the whole year. That's the normal price. I'm offering a special housing affordability special offer for those people who are interested in supporting my work in covering the housing market of, for the next week, this is a week-long special offer of $95 for a year. So you pay $95, you get everything we produce, you're able to comment on all the articles, and you get it for a year. And then at the end of that year... Uh, in theory, the price rolls over and then you would start paying $190. And I'll have to convince you in the next year that it's worth $190. Uh, so uh, I'd love it if you signed up to pay $95 for a full year subscription. That's a 50% discount on the existing price. And actually, uh, if you average that $95 over the 12 months, that's an average of less than $8 a month. So two flat whites a month, that's worth it, I think. And that is a 58% discount on the current normal monthly price of $19 a month. So I'd love it if you signed up. I'm Bernard Hickey, and that is the Kaka podcast on Wednesday the 29th of September. Kakite anō.